0: It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, I'm excited about this passage. It's a a challenging passage, uh, but I'm excited to preach it. Um, I want to start by asking you a question. How many of you want to see hundreds of people come to faith in Jesus Christ in our community over the next several years? Amen, right? Probably not a whole lot of people in in this room that wouldn't say amen to that, right? We want to see that. Okay, now, what if I told you that We can see that happen, but it's going to greatly increase the amount of suffering in your life. It's going to bring persecution on your head. How many hands are still up? You may lose close friends or relationships with family members. You may miss out on a promotion at work. You may be ridiculed as a bigot or falsely accused of doing something that you didn't do. All of that would accompany seeing God powerfully save many in our community. How many of us would want to be a part of that? We're picking up today in Acts chapter 4. We've been uh, walking through the book of Acts together as a church, and up to this point, things are going really well in the early church. I mean, this is about as good of a start as a church plant can have. When you have 3,000 saved at your first service, that's pretty good, right? I mean, that's a way to kick things off. Okay? And then after that, uh, after Pentecost, 3,000 give their lives to Christ as Peter preaches. And then days later, Peter uh, and, and the rest are walking into the temple. He sees a lame man, a man born lame from birth, and he miraculously heals him in Jesus' name. And the crowds are running up to go see what all the commotion is. And Peter's preaching the gospel, and people are coming to faith in Christ. God's working powerfully. And this is awesome, right? that's cool. Who, who doesn't want to see something like that happen here in San Antonio? It's a really, really exciting start. But not everyone was thrilled with what was happening. In Acts chapter 4, the first instance of opposition to the church emerges, and that's what we're going to read about this morning. So if you got your Bible, uh, I'm going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 31 uh, together. So, You can follow along on the screen behind me. If you have a physical copy of God's Word, I'd encourage you to follow along there. I'm going to read, and then I'll pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll dive in. And as they were speaking to the people, they being Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. As Paul says in Second Timothy, I'm bound with chains, but the word of God cannot be bound. Picking up in verse 5, it says, On the next day there were rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? They're referring to the healing of the lame man in chapter 3 there. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed... Let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. In other words, we can't deny the evidence, so let's just suppress it. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And when they were released, they went to their friends, and they reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And pray. Oh God, I thank you for your word, which is so, so much more powerful than anything I could possibly say. So I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would help me to get out of the way and that you would help me to proclaim Christ, Christ crucified and risen. Lord, I pray that you would help me to clearly explain your word and to to skillfully apply it to our lives, not to give my opinions, oh God, but to help us understand what you have said in your word and what that means for us. God, I pray that you, as a result of of this passage this morning, God, that you would fill your people with a boldness so that we would be compelled to leave this place and to go boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear by the power of the Spirit. And I pray that as your word goes forth this morning, that you would help me to preach boldly and that for anyone here in this room that does not know you, God, that has not been born again, that has not been made new from the inside out, that today as they hear your word proclaimed, that you would give them eyes to see, that you would take out their heart of stone and put within them a heart of flesh, give them a heart to believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. I pray that in your name. Amen. So, there's an important principle here uh, that we see in the beginning of Acts chapter 4, and it's that bold gospel proclamation is always accompanied by opposition. Bold gospel proclamation is accompanied by opposition. Um, if we want to see God do incredible things like seeing many, many people saved and come to Christ, we should expect that along with that, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. Jesus told us as much. He said, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. He said, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the threat of persecution far too easily silences us. I believe one of the reasons that passages like this are so hard to relate to is because we aren't doing very much bold gospel proclamation outside of Sunday mornings. We aren't suffering very much because we aren't much of a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Compared to what the early church faced, the danger that we face in America is, is very minimal. Uh, We may be rejected or mocked or scolded, but no one is going to throw us in prison. No one's going going to flog us because we shared the gospel in public. I mean, we have uh, religious freedom protected in the Constitution of the United States of America, something that very, very few people in the history of the world have enjoyed. While we want to see people come to faith in Christ... I fear that we don't want it badly enough to step outside of our comfort zones. We don't want it badly enough to suffer for it. As I read this passage this week, I was convicted and found myself longing for this gospel boldness. Because not only is Jesus worthy of our bold witness, but it's boldness in sharing the gospel that leads to people being saved. I want to see multitudes come to faith in Christ right here in this community. But that won't happen unless we're willing to get uncomfortable. So where does boldness like this come from? The good news is that it's available to all of us, and this passage shows us how. This morning we'll see that we're going to see what boldness looks like in this passage, and we're going to see where it comes from by looking at how the apostles responded to the threats uh, from the authorities. And, And here's the other part of this good news is that when the church started, it was just a ragtag group of about 120 people who beforehand had been hiding in a room, scared for their lives. And I'm convinced more now than I've ever been that God can take a little church plant like us who's just six months old Right, 60, 70, 80 people, and that he can use even a little church plant like ours to completely shake this community and see many, many people turn to the Lord and turn from sin. Because it's not about how strong we are or about how much we bring to the table. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit that that rests upon us. And that's what I hope that we'll see this morning. So I want to look at this passage in three parts. I want to look at the Apostles' bold testimony, The council's cowardly threats and the church's earnest prayer. So, let's look in at verses 5 to 12 first. So, after spending a night in jail, Peter and John were brought before the high priest to be questioned, and the council demanded to know by what power or name they had healed the man lame from birth. So, this is really the moment of truth for them. Because remember, the apostles are standing before the very same men who weeks earlier had run a sham trial for Jesus, had found people who would bring false testimony, and then demanded to the Roman government that he be crucified. And they had watched Jesus be murdered right before their eyes. And now they're standing before the same high priests, the same high priestly family. They know these people hate Jesus. And now these people are saying, by whose name did this lame man get healed? So what are they going to do? Are they going to identify themselves with Jesus, the one that these men just murdered about seven or eight weeks earlier? What would you do? Choosing in this moment to identify, identify themselves with Jesus could have serious consequences. You would think that would give them pause, But there was no hesitation at all in their response, was there? Look at what Peter says again in verse 10. I mean, and he even gets a little salty in verse 9. He's like, hey, look, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, right? Like, he's kind of like, look, you guys are trying us here on, you know, false premises. Like, we, we haven't done anything wrong. And then he says, if that's what we're on trial for, then let it be known to you and to everyone listening that it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Just so you're not confused which Jesus I'm talking about, it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Oh yeah, the one whom you crucified, whom God then raised from the dead. It's it's him, that Jesus is the one that's caused this man who was lame for 40 years to be standing up before you. Well, it's the name of the risen Jesus Christ. Wow, that's a bold witness right there. This really is a a wonderful model of what a bold witness looks like. A bold gospel witness requires us to be very clear on two things that are often offensive to the world, and we see Peter do that here. I want to point these out to you. First of all, a bold witness is clear on sin. When asked by whose name the lame man was healed, Peter didn't hesitate to say, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he said, whom you crucified." And then in the next verse, he drove the point home by quoting Psalm 118. This is a messianic psalm that foreshadowed the Messiah. Jesus is the stone that the builders had rejected, the builders were the religious authorities, and they had rejected him by having him crucified, but God the Father had made him the cornerstone by raising him from the dead. And Peter says, this, this man is healed this, by Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom you rejected. He lays the blame for Jesus' death right at their feet, and he doesn't hesitate to do so. It's tempting when sharing the gospel to gloss over sin or to speak about it in generalities. But when we do that, we're actually doing a disservice to the other person. We need to be honest with people about where they stand apart from Christ. And the honest truth is that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of sin is death. It's our sin and it's their sin that put Jesus Christ... On that cross. So in a sense, we can say to our own selves and to others, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, He died for your sin. He died for my sin. That's why the sinless Son of God went to the cross. For our sin. One practical way to do this when you're sharing the gospel is just to walk people through the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the moral law of God. And it's like a mirror we can hold up to someone's life to help them see that they've sinned against a holy God. And while that may be uncomfortable, it's critical. Because if people don't understand their need for salvation, they're not going to see their need for Jesus in the first place. The gospel makes no sense if we're not clear about sin. I mean, no doctor looks forward to telling her patient that he has cancer. But until the disease is identified, the treatment cannot be applied. Healing cannot begin. If we don't help people see their need for salvation, the gospel makes no sense. So we need to be clear on sin, but a bold witness is also clear on the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Peter says in verse 12, there's salvation in no one else there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So after Peter indicted the authorities in Jesus' death, he then preached the gospel to him. And the gospel proclamation is, is implicit in his declaration that salvation is found in Christ alone. It's, it's an invitation even to the very builders who rejected the cornerstone to receive grace from the Savior that they rejected. He's extending God's mercy to them. But at the same time, it's a warning. It's a warning that if they do not turn to Jesus, that they cannot be saved. If they trust in their works, if they reject Jesus, they will be condemned. And and, and I need to be clear this morning that the same thing is true for every single person in this room. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. If you are placing your faith in your own works, if you think that one day you'll stand before God and He will receive you, He will let you into heaven because you went to church all your life, or because you were a pretty good person, or because you were better than your neighbor, then you have placed your hope in a crumbling foundation that won't be able to stand. Your works cannot save you because God is perfectly holy and we have all already sinned and fallen short. Your only hope is to realize just how spiritually impoverished you are. Like the song says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is the cry of a born-again Christian who understands I can't bring anything to God. I'm desperately dependent upon Him and His grace for salvation. Is that you? Is that the cry of your heart? If, If... If you've never cried that out to the Lord, I want to invite you to do that this morning. God, I don't want to depend on myself anymore. And what a a heavy burden to bear to try to always wonder if you've done enough, to always wonder if you're going to make it, if God's going to receive you. Does He really love me? You don't have to wonder. It doesn't have to be a mystery. God's already demonstrated His love for you by sending Christ to die for you while you were still a sinner and then raised Him from the dead And He wants to give you the free gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you'll just lay down your stubborn pride and humble yourself and receive it. The only thing keeping you away from a reconciled relationship with God is pride. Don't do that. Lay down your pride this morning and call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Only the blood of Jesus is sufficient to pay your infinite sin debt And only the risen Jesus can give you eternal life. That's why there's no other way. That's why there's no other way. And church, we need to be crystal clear that salvation is found in Christ alone when we're sharing the gospel with others. Jesus is not another option among many on a a religious menu. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The modern world today would have you believe that there are multiple paths to God. You guys heard something like that before? All sorts of different ways to come to God. Like you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and at the end, we'll all—you know—God will accept us all. At the end of the day, the world thinks that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere in your faith in whatever it is that you believe in. And while that might sound accepting and loving, it's actually not loving at all because it's not true. It's a lie. And and I'll just say this, it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a a deceptive, wicked lie because it masquerades as something good and it masquerades as loving, but it leads people to destruction. And we've got to be clear with people that there's only one way. There's only one name under heaven by which people can be saved. And it's, it's hard to imagine doing this with family members or friends because this is really where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? And this is what this is what made the authorities so upset, right? Where you talk about people's sin, and then you start talking about how, hey, the way that you're going, you can't save yourself. You have to depend on Jesus. I mean, that, that starts to draw the ire of people. It'll do one of two things. It'll either convict people of sin and show them their need for Christ, or it'll make them angry. It's plausible to imagine ourselves sharing the gospel and, and saying to our family members or our friends, this is what I believe, and then leaving it at that, But calling for a response makes it personal. We're not just saying this is what I believe. We're saying this is what you must believe or you will be damned. You understand that? That's that's what sharing the gospel is. And we have to do that. I'm I'm not saying we need to be an evangelistic bull in a china shop. Right? and go in and start being rude or being abrasive or being, you know, uh, judgmental, things like that. We have to do this with the utmost humility because, guys, if not for the grace of God, we would be in the exact same position. I have nothing possible that I could ever boast in except for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. If you had known me for the first 24 years of my life, I was not a good person. I was not a kind person. I did not care about other people and I was running as far and as fast from God as I possibly could. And the only explanation for why there's anything good in me today is the grace of Jesus Christ because God stopped me on my mad course towards hell just like he stopped Saul on the road to Damascus and he said, I am Jesus Christ the King and you are going to stop running from me and you are going to serve me for the rest of your life. And praise God that he did it in me. That's why we can boast in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And so we need to do this with grace. So is there somebody that God is laying on your heart to go to have an honest conversation with? It may be that God is going to use that very conversation to lead that person to faith. Perhaps what's been missing in that person's life is somebody that loves them enough to be a bold gospel Witness, to be clear with them in a loving way about sin, and to be clear in a loving way about the exclusivity of faith in Jesus Christ alone. Verses 13 to 22 details the council's response to the apostles. In contrast to the apostles' bold testimony, the council made cowardly threats. They couldn't deny the clear evidence. Verse 14 says that seeing the man who was healed standing besides them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Even though the evidence was clear, their their hearts were hard and they refused to believe. In fact, verse 21 says that they were looking for a way to punish the apostles, but they couldn't because of the crowds. They were afraid of how the crowds were going to react. You see, behind the, the angry threats of these religious authorities was fear. They were fearful. Ironically, it was the weak and uneducated apostles who were bold, and it was the big, bad religious authorities who were terrified. And they were just hiding behind their angry threats to hide their anger. What was the difference? What was the difference between the apostles and these religious authorities? Yes. Not where I was going, but that's true too. The apostles feared God more than man, and the council feared man more than God. The apostles feared God more than man, and the council feared man more than God. When they demanded the apostles to stop preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, did you notice the apostles' response in verse 19 and 20? They said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. What was their answer? Look, we have to obey God, not man. You can threaten us all you want, but we have received a commission from the Lord, and we must obey Him, even if it costs us our lives, because we fear God more than we fear you. The apostles were concerned with proclaiming the truth. The council was concerned with preserving their reputations and their position. They were watching scores of people turn away from them, the leaders, and turn to this Jesus, the very one that they had rejected and crucified whom God had raised. And in their pride and their selfish ambition, they were so fixated on receiving the praise of man that they couldn't believe. And they were so angry and they were so fearful of losing the praise of man and losing this position of power that they were so blinded in their rage they couldn't see the evidence right in front of their faces that the very Messiah their people had been praying for for centuries had come and looked them in the face and they would murdered them. And then he rose from the dead, and they wanted to murder his followers because they feared man more than God. Their hearts were hardened due to their love of the praise of man. It didn't really matter how much evidence was presented to them. Perhaps you know somebody with a hard heart. Maybe you have a heart that is hard toward Jesus this morning. The reality is that no amount of crafty arguments or innovative methods can soften a hard heart. Only God can soften a hard heart. And He does so through the prayers of His people. And so if you know someone like that in your life, don't stop praying for them. Follow the example of the parable that Jesus told of the persistent widow who continued to go to the unjust judge over and over and over again until He gave her what she requested. We need to pray for those with hardened hearts. 2 Timothy 2 says that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. May God do so for those in our lives that are hardened towards Jesus. A softened heart is a heart that's been made new. A heart that fears God more than man can only come through being born again. can only come through God doing a miraculous work inside of us. God gave a heart like that to His apostles. And if you're a Christian, God has given you a heart like that too. He's put His Spirit in you. Gospel boldness does not have anything to do with how naturally courageous you are. You don't need to be really smart or really strong to be bold. If you feel ill-equipped or if you feel intimidated or afraid, that's actually a good place to be. I mean, the apostles weren't impressive. They weren't really smart. They weren't really strong. Look at verse 13 again. I mean, What made their boldness so astonishing to the authorities was how normal they were. It says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. These were the same men who 50 days earlier were running and hiding from having to stand with Jesus before these exact same authorities as he was on trial. They were gone, nowhere to be found. Peter couldn't even hold up under the questioning of a little girl without denying Jesus three times, just like Jesus said would happen. Do you realize that these very same apostles were enslaved to the fear of man just eight or nine weeks earlier? But God graciously forgave them and transformed their hearts. It was because they were so common that their boldness was so astonishing. And what took place here before the council is exactly what Jesus promised to his disciples whose spirit he puts in them. In Luke twelve eleven and 12, he said, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you are to say. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit gives us the faith to fear God more than man and fills us with boldness to bear witness faithfully, even in the face of opposition. But at times we don't feel bold, do we? I mean, I don't think I'm the only person in here who has passed up an opportunity or avoided an opportunity to be a bold witness for Jesus because of fear, right? I think we would all admit that we've been in those shoes before. So why is that? If we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, why are we not more consistently bold witnesses for the gospel? Well, I think it's because we need to regularly ask the Lord Jesus to fill us with His Spirit and embolden us. See, after the authorities threatened the apostles one final time, probably with death, They they let them go because they were afraid to punish them. And and the apostles, they go back to their friends, they go back to the church, and they share what happened, and what do they do? They pray. I think almost what's happening here is that Peter and John were filled with the Spirit in that moment. They were under so much pressure. They were probably trembling even as they're boldly proclaiming the gospel before, before the authorities, and they were just drained. They were spent. They had poured everything out there before these authorities. God had released them, and they needed to be refilled. They needed to be strengthened. They needed to be around their brothers and sisters in Christ, and they needed to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus, and they needed to pray. And maybe that's what you need to do too. Maybe you need a fresh infilling from the Lord. So in verse 23, it says that uh, when they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Let me ask you, what is your first instinct when you're afraid? The temptation when we're afraid is to scheme and to plan and to try to figure a way out of our situation, isn't it? To Protect ourselves. But like a small child who wakes up from a bad dream in the middle of the night and runs to her parents' room, God calls us to come to Him in prayer when we're afraid. Psalm 56.3 says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. What can flesh do to me? God is a very present help in times of trouble. What a gift that we can go to him in prayer. But I want to finish by focusing on a, a for a few minutes on the content of their prayer. I often talk about praying in response to Scripture and using a pattern called, He is worthy, we are needy. So we, we read a passage from God's Word, and then, you know, uh, and then we think about how can we praise God in response to His Word? He, are, we, he is worthy. And then we think about what needs do we need to bring to God in prayer? We are needy. Okay? So we look, at, uh, we look to God and remember the one that we're praying to, and then we bring our petitions and our requests to Him. Or another way to put it is that we want to look to God's face before we look to His hand. We want to remember the one that we're going to. And that's exactly what the church does here in their prayer. They began their prayer by addressing God as Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And then they, they quote scripture from Psalm chapter 2. So they, they looked to God's face and they recalled that He is the sovereign Lord and the creator of everything. Not only did He make everything, but He controls everything. They, they recalled God's word, specifically Psalm 2, which is another messianic psalm, and it describes how God's anointed one, Jesus, will be victorious over the conspiracy of the nations. Ultimately, all who oppose Him do so foolishly and will not prevail. No matter how bleak things may look for God's people, God has set His anointed one on the throne. And though the nations rage, He who sits in the heavens laughs. And Psalm 2 ends with a gracious warning to the rulers of the earth, urging them to kiss the sun lest they perish in the way. Sometimes I'll go back and I'll watch game six of the 2022 World Series where the Houston Astros clinched the World Series championship and the first time I watched the game when it was live it was riveting and it was nerve-wracking and there was a time when my team was down and it was you know it's kind of you were really anxious wondering what's going to happen because I didn't know the end result but I like to go back and watch it again because it was such an exciting game but it's different when I go back and rewatch it because I know that massive Jordan Alvarez home run in the 6th inning is coming Like, I know that thing's coming. So even when the astros are down as I'm watching it, I know how this thing is going to turn out. I know the end of the story. So now as I'm watching the drama unfold, I'm not doing so with anxiety. I'm doing so with anticipation, with excitement, with joy. Brothers and sisters, that's what we get to do as a church. God has already shown us how the story ends. Jesus wins. He's on the throne and he's not going anywhere. He rose from the dead, and that's what this early church was doing. They were looking to Psalm 2, and they were acknowledging. They watched Psalm 2 play out. They saw the conspiracy of the nations, Herod and Pontius Pilate, and the peoples conspire together against the Lord, against the anointed one Jesus, by crucifying Him on a cross. And they thought they had won, and He was in the ground for three days. But He rose from the dead, and He's risen, and He's alive forevermore, and He is on His throne. Brothers and sisters, that's why we can have confidence even in the face of opposition. Even when it looks like the church is losing, the church is not losing. The church doesn't lose. So what if we're not growing really fast? So what if we're not seeing multitudes of people come to Christ? I don't know what's going to happen in the days ahead, but I know one thing, Jesus wins. So what if the church in Iran is being suppressed right now or if the church in China is being told they can't meet? The authorities can do all they want They can make threats. They can be angry. They can put Christians to death. Christ is just going to raise them from the dead. Man, but we have so much reason for confidence. God is so good and so powerful. And any suffering that God does permit against us in the meantime, He permits only for our good. They acknowledge that in verse 27. They say, When Herod and Pontius Pilate were arrayed against Jesus, they were just doing whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. And they took that truth and they applied it to their own lives and realized that no matter what befalls them, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from their Father in heaven who loves them. Not a hair of your head will be touched apart from your heavenly Father who loves you. That's the kind of rock-solid confidence that we can have. That's what helps a Christian to be able to stand before authorities who could put you to death in an instant and say, there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. That's where that boldness comes from. I love how we watch truths like this from God's word help Christians courageously proclaim Christ even in the midst of great danger and Uh, The story of John Payton is an an amazing example. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides. They're a chain of islands off the coast of Australia. In the 1800s, uh, they were hostile, cannibalistic tribes. And his autobiography, if you've never read it, well, you just need to pick it up. But be careful, you might want to be a missionary after you read it because it's inspiring and it's challenging. Uh, and, And his life has inspired tens of thousands to go to the nations with the gospel. Uh, He went through tremendous suffering. Uh, He lost his wife and his child within the first year that he was on this hostile island. And incredibly, he stayed. He didn't leave and he persevered there. Uh, He was under constant threat of his life. If you just go read some of the stories, it's unbelievable. I don't know how he did it. I, I mean, I do know how, but it's just hard to fathom putting myself in his shoes. I just want to read you a little excerpt. I wish I could read you a bunch of what he said, but I just want to read you this little excerpt. It'll give you a picture into what drove him. He said, life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made. And yet, with my trembling hand, clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary, and now swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. And looking up an unceasing prayer to our Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Wow. Brothers and sisters, we need to return regularly to God's word and again and again to be reminded of who God is and what God has promised. We need to regularly gather with other believers and plead with God for boldness in prayer so that we won't shrink back when we are threatened. If you're lacking in boldness, if you're finding yourself avoiding opportunities to share the gospel, then you need to be filled with the Spirit, and God offers that freely to you. Perhaps you've been neglecting God's Word or neglecting to gather in prayer with God's people. I'd encourage you, like, look for opportunities. We have life groups that meet throughout the week. Come and be filled. Hear God's Word together. Pray together. Second Sunday prayer, come and join us for prayer as we pray uh, and plead with the Lord for our community. God wants to fill you with this boldness and He wants to work through this little church plant. I promise you He does. I know He does. I'm convinced of it. And I don't care if anybody else, nobody else prays with me, I'm going to be praying for it. And I'm not going to stop until others start praying with me and until we see God move in powerful ways because I know we're going to. I know we're going to. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. I just want to close by pointing out uh, we, we've spent a lot of time seeing how they prayed and they looked to God's face and they remembered who God is. But did you notice what they asked for? You ever, who, If you grew up in church, I don't know if you ever experienced this, but like whenever there was uh, a team about to take a mission trip, um, it's like we always prayed for their safety, right? And that was like the main thing we prayed for. Nothing wrong with that. It's good. You can pray for safety. But we spent a lot more time praying for the safety of our mission team that was going to be staying in a four-star hotel uh, in, you know, Nicaragua or whatever while they went out and, you know, did a mission trip than we did for, like, the advance of the gospel in that place where they were going. And and again, nothing wrong with praying for safety. That's good, right? We want to do that. But did you notice the prayer of the early church here? They didn't pray for safety, did they? That's that's uh, That's significant. They said, Grant to your servant to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. These believers prioritized God's kingdom over their comforts. They didn't ask for protection or to be spared from persecution. They asked for boldness. And then they asked God to continue to work miraculously, bearing witness to the truth of the gospel message. More than anything, they wanted to know Jesus and they wanted to make Jesus known. And I'm just going to tell you, when God finds a church, when God finds a people who are willing to get on their face and plead with him for boldness and they're willing to lay down their comfort and prioritize the kingdom over comfort, there is no limit to what God will do through a people like that, through a church like that. And I am praying that that is what God will do in me, in my own heart, and in us as a church. And I cannot wait to see what God's going to do in the years ahead. The future is bright, Pillar San Antonio. I'm so excited about what God is going to do in the days ahead. And we're going to be able to watch him do it and give him all the glory for it because there's really nothing impressive about us, right? We are common, uneducated men and women. No offense to any of you who've got master's degrees or anything, but we just, okay, we're not special, all right? We need Jesus. So I'll close with the question that I started with. Do you want to see hundreds come to faith in Christ? Do you want to see God move in power? If we'll put our trust in God's sovereign goodness and prioritize kingdom over comfort, He'll do it. When faced with opposition, we must be bold gospel witnesses by prayerfully depending upon the Holy Spirit.